Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. The final batch of ElixirConf US 2022 videos have been released. We'll drop a link in the show notes. You can watch the videos over lunch and increase that playback speed to what suits your preferences. And be sure to share what you're learning with your team. And next up, Elixir CI and CD was a topic this week in the community. And I posted an article on using GitHub Actions for CI and auto-deploying the CD part to fly.io. What's interesting about the CI part, like even if you're using something else like Circle CI or Semaphore or anything else, hopefully it's still a really helpful guide because a lot of it's just about Elixir and what are the types of checks that we want to run on our Elixir projects and also what should we be caching to speed up our builds by showing how to partition our CI tests using GitHub Actions. So partitioning our tests means that you can take like, he had like a 15 to 16 minute test suite and he could split that up into four test runners that are all running in parallel and then get that down to a total test run, the whole suite in three to four minutes. So he shows how to do that, which I thought was really cool. So we have links to the, both of those in the show notes. I've done that partitioning stuff before. It was like magic. I remember I remember that being really tough to do or like five years ago with other frameworks. Uh, yeah, but getting this mixed partition test and seeing how it was built in, uh, oh, I loved it. It just worked when I, when I ran it. So I loved it. All right, also up with the Phoenix 1.7 release candidate, people are starting to play with it. And so we're talking about Nathan Wilson already. So speaking of him, he also documented visually how dead view controllers, pages, and views were kind of restructured. So he created a helpful graphic for a reference. So go look at it. I can't describe it to you <laughs> in, a, in an audio. It has boxes and arrows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you needed a representation of what changed in the directories, this is going to be really helpful. So the big changes is that views, the view folder in Phoenix 1.7 is kind of getting it's kind of getting axed. There's not there's not going to be a view folder anymore. Instead, in place of a view, there's now like post HTML or post JSON, right? So like we're 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 coupling the format of what is being rendered now, right? So before you'd have views slash post view. Now it's now it's just post HTML, but all of that is getting moved into your controllers folder. So I don't know how I feel about that yet. I'm not, I mean, it's, it doesn't bother me. And why should it, right? There's, there's plenty of more important things in the world to bother me so deeply. Just leaving it in the controller folder. It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't feel, feel right to me because <laughs> it's not controlling anything. That leads me to think like this is more about co-locating, you know, your stuff, which I'm, I'm cool with that. But if we're going to get rid of the templates folder because templates and these new HTML JSON files are going to like co-locate to each other, right? So like under the post HTML folder, now there's index.heeks and show.heeks and all that kind of stuff, right? So all that's now in your controllers folder, but they're all co-located. Let's just get rid of the controllers folder too. Why not? Like just, <laughs> just go ahead and upend the whole thing, right? <laughs> we forgot about that one. We were busy getting rid of everything else. <laughs> well, they got to figure out what to rename it because you still need some kind of container for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. And I'm sure we'll find a good structure. Maybe you just call it dead. You know, just have a, the directory. <laughs> These are all the dead view things. Use live view. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. 
even though this is slightly uncomfortable for me, probably more more because it's just a change from what's been around for like 10 years, you know, because of the MVC kind of rails introduced, you know, this conventional way of organizing your stuff. I mean, I know we have celebrated our Elixir 10 years, but I don't think Phoenix has been around for that long. We've moved away from MVC as more so recently with LiveView. So like, anyway. I w- we won't get into it yet. Yet, <laughs> maybe we'll formulate some thoughts. We'll get some public opinion in there too, and see see where this lands. Maybe Phoenix One Eight is going to uh, move some things around again. But here's one thing I am truly thankful for: is that um, you can put your files wherever you want, and it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> as long as long as you you know reference your modules correctly. You're you're good, right? You can embed your templates. Just feed it a path of where to look. You can put your files wherever you want. And that is that is freeing to me. I love that. Not every framework is like that. You you have to follow you have to follow the rules or you get your wrists slapped with bad compiles or unfound, you know, things, things that just don't work. So I'm happy that Phoenix is working in my favor <laughs> in this case. One thing I noticed that Nathan was ruminating on and thinking about was that maybe because the the this change that we're talking about right here was not documented in the blog post or the change log really not not very well and he was just identifying that well this is an rc this is the kind of thing that might get better documented maybe some of the background about why this is or migration guide kind of steps would be interesting too i guess there's more time for things to settle out this this is rc zero after all you remember Phoenix 1.3? Oh man, that was a big directory restructuring of things too. <laughs> was that context or? Uh huh. <laughs> this isn't going to be as. Uh... It's not as disruptive. Yeah, that's the word. Thank you. That's not as as disruptive. All right. Well, that's enough about Phoenix 1.7 RC and the changes that are incoming. What else is coming up? Let's talk about telemetry. Alex Kutmos wrote a guide and a sample project showing how you can use open telemetry with Elixir and visualize the data in Grafana. He included a Phoenix project with an intentional N plus one problem to demonstrate how to visualize these problems. It's a nice approach to debugging production database performance issues. So we'll drop a link to the show notes if you're interested. And last up, we saw a unique project that was shared on Elixir forum. And really it's kind of hard to explain this, but it was a a very, different approach. It was creating an Elixir font using Unicode characters and things. And and what it let you do is by expressing text like the word list underscore horizontal parenthesis three, which isn't actually Elixir code, but expressing that would then generate a graphic if you're using the font. And then it was composable in that you could build like these data structures and then put things inside the data structures in, that would be rendered into a font, in, into a graphic. It was really kind of crazy and weird. And I was like, wow, how I didn't know you could do that with fonts, for one. And I thought it was interesting. It could represent things like lists, maps, structs, and tuples, along with more basic types like atoms. And it's just a really creative idea, a creative use of a font. I don't know that I would want to use this as a font, but if I wanted to be able to create graphics for education and training and not have to re-render the graphics, and I could just edit text, I can see that as the benefit. This is super interesting. Yeah, (laughs) a fun creative use of a font. The closest thing I can liken this to is like a mermaid graph, though. You know, like a mermaid graph is kind of similar. It's just not Elixir specific, right? 
with some sort of like markup, you define what the graph looks like and it's simplified. So it, it's, it's somewhat readable, even not rendered, but the rendered part is what you're really looking for, right? Same with this, the font is you, you're getting the rendered part, but if you change the font, is, is this something that you can still pass to somebody that, that, you know, be, is still helpful? I wonder if, you know, but comparing this to, a, you know, like a mermaid extension or something, uh, would this be helpful as a mermaid extension? So that way it's a rendered artifact, right? And you provide it some sort of markup. And the markup is things like list horizontal three and, st- you know, stuff like that. Like it's, that's not very, anyway, I, I've never seen anything like this before. This is, this is super cool. <laughs> it's very creative. And I wonder if it's like using, ligatures or something like that where in some fonts maybe a double l turns into a different character and is represented differently so it's maybe it's using something like that i don't know how this even works (laughs) yeah that's cool what i do think would be interesting is using something like this maybe just inspired by this but as a live view representation of code so i could maybe have a little live cell or something in there where i could say using ast and reflecting into what the actual code is Render that visually, because I think in a live book, that makes a lot more sense, especially where that we seem to be coalescing around education and being able to do more there in in live book. So I think that might be a good way to do it. And then you don't need a font. Anyway, it's an interesting idea. We'll love to see what happens. But that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guests, the Elixir Wizards. We've got Owen Bickford and Sunday Mint. Welcome, guys. Hey. Hello, hello. Well, this is fun because we were able to have a little special trip where we headed on over to your podcast and got to talk with you guys there. So thank you for coming back and visiting with us because I would like to learn a little bit more about what you guys do. And, you know, when you're running your own show, you spend most of the time talking to your guests and learning about them. I don't know if that many people know much about you. So we are excited to have you here to talk about some of the interesting things, I think, in the industry, because as people are coming into the industry, there's lots of different job options available, different kinds of software companies to work at. So I would want to talk about some of the different ones that I've seen and I've worked at. I know David and I have worked at different types of places and you guys work at Smart Logic. And I want to learn a little bit more about what that is like as a software shop and what it's like working there and what kind of stuff you guys do. But before we get into all that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you guys. It's like, where do you guys live and how did you come to Elixir? So yeah, I'm Owen and I live in Dallas. I'm a new resident of Dallas, Texas. Moved here from Michigan. uh, So I've escaped the cold weather and I'm Living my life, <laughs> happy in this uh, eighty degree November weather. So yeah, if you see me smiling on the streets, that's that's why. <laughs> Wearing shorts in November, yeah. 
Yes. And Owen's been pretty vocal at different conferences and meetups that he was shopping for new locations. So for for people listening who've interacted with Owen and were wondering where he landed, it was Dallas. That was that was the move. Right. Your city may be next. Like uh, you know, Dallas may not be permanent. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gone through a Dallas summer in a in a couple of years, so we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Yeah. If that's too if that's too hot for you. There is North Carolina over there in the Triangle area. Nice little tech hub. We got some mild weather. It uh, doesn't get extremely hot. It does get pretty hot some days, but it also doesn't get extremely Michigan cold either. (laughs) That's what I'm looking for. (laughs) That's kind of like the baseline. Like I need to not see 16 degrees Fahrenheit on the weather app. Ever. Yeah, you you don't want to you don't want to die on either side of the uh, the spectrum here. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to be able to breathe while I'm outside. <laughs> Protect yeah. Owen at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we do have like the pollening sometimes, so like your car will be dusted with yellow stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so that that does happen. Your allergies will not be kind to you some some weeks. Yeah, North Carolina is pretty pretty nice, especially in the tech hub, the RTP area. Using a lot of words that only North Carolinians probably know. The uh, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area, that that little triangle of a, of a place is pretty cool. Gotcha. Adding that to the list. So, Sunday, where do you live? I just moved to Baltimore, Maryland this year. Um, I was in D.C. for a very long time. So if you if you saw me in the circuit under D.C. Elixir Meetup, that was why I wasn't impersonating. I really did live in D.C. for a very long time. And it's funny because SmartLogic is based in, out of Baltimore. If you've ever heard the wizard intro, outro, mentioned that. And when I first started at SmartLogic, my family asked if I was going to have to move because, you know, it was like mid-2020 and they were thinking, oh, you you got a job based out of Baltimore. That means you're going to move to Baltimore. And I was like, nah, not a fat <laughs> chance in hell or something. And <laughs> then I uh, did it voluntarily. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. I was like, I don't think I'm going to move to Texas. I don't feel good about that. And then here I am. Yeah, voluntarily. So I think I think the whole thing is really funny, but it's been a blast. I've been living my best life. My cat is super happy with all the windows she gets to look out at. I was in a tiny apartment in D.C. and just we have all the space now. It's just really nice. And I'm I'm near more coworkers now, which I wasn't near as many before. So that's it's cool. It's cool to sync up with people. Did you go from like a urban apartment to a suburban place? <laughs> yeah, I had like an English basement and a row home in a really cute neighborhood in D.C. And then I moved to I guess this is a four bedroom home. In Baltimore, I bought my first house in April. Yeah. Congrats. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. So I'd like to hear a little bit about your individual paths to Elixir. Like, what were you using before? And then how did you end up saying, wow, Elixir is what I, where I want to spend a chunk of my time? My route, it's a little more traditional in that I, I found a job that used Elixir. And so I just picked it up because that was what the job was using. Uh, that was back in D.C., I was at Kava. I was working on our Kava digital team, which worked on the mobile application for ordering food. And the front end was React and the back end was uh, Elixir. So I was a React dev for that time. I I don't think I I would recognize it today, but uh, I was originally more of a front end dev. And then I went into Elixir uh, there and I just got involved with the community and I just wanted to stay forever. So here I am. You know, I've stepped foot into a kava for the first time after I moved to Dallas a couple weeks ago. Ooh, you didn't tell me that. I'd never seen a kava. Yeah. Well, how did it go? Well, I was on vacation, so 
I didn't order anything. <laughs> oh, Owen. This is why did you mention it? I had just eaten. I, was, I needed a pit stop is what it was. So <laughs> thanks, Kava. <laughs> oh, okay. My go-to recommendation is anything with the garlic dressing. It is the best. I do need to go back and like try out some kava. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Keep me posted. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a kava in, in uh, Kerry, by the way. Mm-hmm. So my path to Elixir is a little bit stranger, maybe. So I was working in customer service and I kind of saw the writing on the wall with the Google. Like, I think it was like I already kind of knew I wanted to be a, a developer, but there was this uh, Google I.O. event a few years ago where they showed like customer service, like being automated by like a uh, voice recognition system. And it was basically making the call for like you kind of see like how that would play out on both sides now. Fast forward to like current times, it hasn't really replaced all customer service. So I don't think it was as present a danger as it seemed, but you know, still that's potentially out there in the future. So anyway, they kind of like lit the fire under me to like restart my ambitions towards becoming a software developer. So I kind of uh, started learning about JavaScript and Elixir and functional programming all about the same time. And then quickly realized that I was trying to do too much. <laughs> so I kind of shelved Elixir for a while and focused on JavaScript and built some things. And then um, I had kind of a couple side projects where I was kind of dabbling with Elixir again after a couple of years. And then got my first full-time developer job. So kind of made the switch from customer service to engineering when I was at uh, a previous company, Comcast. So that was nice. And that was ironically, moves into PHP. So that was my first couple of years as a developer, was writing PHP, learning things in the, the OO way after after learning functional, which uh, kind of had the opposite experience of most people, I think, you know. So like trying to wrap my head around traits and interfaces and like, why would you want to do all this? <laughs> and uh, yeah, fast forward to, uh, it's been just over a year. I joined Smart Logic October of 2021. We just celebrated Owen's one-year anniversary with some fun, uh, fun, happy shirts. What do you call them? Bright Hawaiian shirts. Uh, we made a little poster for him. It was great. No fun. Oh, is this is this a is this a thing? Is this what you do? You wear tie-dye Hawaiian shirts or something like that all the time? Well, I have a couple of Hawaiian shirts. This is the tie-dye shirt we made for like our get-together at ElixirConf a couple months ago. But I do have a collection of shirts. <laughs> so I, my rule of thumb, it's not like Hawaiian, but like I try to avoid plaid and stripes unless they're interesting stripes, you know, <laughs> wanna, don't want to blend in usually. So he never does. Literally never. <laughs> they're, they're right. bright and fun. Oh, and I'm curious though, why, what made you think when you're saying, I want to learn development, I want to go from being customer service to be software developer what said elixir like where were you because like that is not like the the default thing like you know normally like you ended up going into javascript with more focus why even start with elixir how did that show up on your radar yeah so rewinding just a little bit i like the first time i'd really like just said hey i want to be a software developer i decided well you know i think apps are supposed to be easy so i tried to learn android and java <laughs> the easy way from whatever the youtube video was and i kind of noped out real fast. Yeah, by the time I was, you know, in customer service and kind of starting to try it again to get back in, I um, 
I think I was just watching YouTube, like whatever I could find on YouTube. So you can thank the YouTube algorithm for suggesting. I think I'd watch enough JavaScript or whatever language I was looking at. Like, I think it was probably JavaScript, like people talking about React, because that was the new hotness around 2015, 20, 2016. And so there's a lot of talk about functional, immutable, all these new terms. And I think as I was searching for those, Elixir was starting to bubble up at the same time. So you're starting to see a lot more Elixir Conf talks and a bunch of stuff. So I, I digested a bunch of talks in the first few years. All right. Well, I want to get into this topic where we're talking about software companies, because I know like we've had some, we've had guests on, we're talking about getting into programming, like coming new. Oh, and you're talking about transitioning from one IT career to development. So I wanted to think it'd be interesting to just talk about the different types of software companies that are out there that we might find ourselves working in. Four came to mind when I was thinking about this. The one that I know the best is the, the software company where they're building typically like a SaaS, or maybe it's some type of software that you're paying for and you have a subscription for. But that, that's what the company does. They make a product. That's where my entire career was. As I was preparing for this, I started thinking back to every job I've had, and it's been one of those. A product company. A product company, right. Where I am working at something where I'm working on the same project for like six years, right? So the way I interact with that project is different. What I value is different because I have I have been that person who criticizes my own two-year-old code and say, what was I thinking? That was so stupid, right? That's the perspective I come from. Then there's the another one, which is, I think of those companies like something like a Hobby Lobby, right? Where they are not a software company, but software is definitely a part of their business. And they're going to hire people to build the tools that they need for their warehouses, for their uh, point of sale systems or whatever they have that's unique to them. And so there's people that work in those kinds of companies where they're doing software, but it's not a software focused company. Like Kava. <laughs> yeah, like Kava. There's <laughs> a food company. There, I think the CEO, CEO went on record saying like, we're, we're a food company, not a tech company. Or maybe he didn't go on record. And I'm just saying that. But yeah, he, he firmly believed that we're, we're food first, he said. Right. Yeah, that's a great example. There's a difference between these two types of companies, though, that that uh, is underlying the difference, which is where software engineers are considered a profit center versus a cost center, right? The software company that provides, you know, engineering for their SaaS, that is, that's the source of the company's income is that SaaS, right? That's the, the, those engineers are providing profit. But a, a Hobby Lobby just needs to operate Right. And their profit comes from people buying stuff off the shelves. So the software is there to support that. That is a cost for them to operate. The values of those companies are, are quite different when it comes to like in, engineers. Right. So so your day to day is going to feel probably pretty different between those. I've not worked at the Hobby Lobby kind of place or Kava kind of place um, before. So I'm not sure what that one is, but I have a feeling we hear hear about them on the news a little bit. <laughs> so another one is uh, where I think it's, I'm not sure exactly what you call it, but it's like a marketing agency where someone comes to this company and says, hey, we, we need a website, we need a whole ad campaign. And, you know, they're trying to brand themselves. And as part of that package, it's like, we're going to create a website for you and it's going to do some special stuff that they're requesting. So there's some software component that is part of a, a larger package. Now, David, have, do you have experience doing that? I, I do. I don't think that the lines are as clear as where we might be drawing here because I worked for a place that was both a marketing agency and the next one you're going to be talking about, the software agency. 
So the the difference is just what what the company the client needs, right? Marketing is is the big focus versus like an application. So there's application development versus what you might I don't know like 20 years ago you might say like I'm I'm a website developer. That's probably like a marketing agency kind of thing. I need to spin up a WordPress in, in, uh, instance, right? Get some content up there, have a have a home page at home, but it's not really an application that does things versus what I do nowadays, which is that software agency side. I won't spoil it, but yeah, that's I, I think both of them are typically can or can be done in the same company, though. Yeah, so you tease it there. Software agency is another type. And that, I think, is what smart logic falls under. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Based on the definitions, we're kind of lining up here. Yeah. I mean, our tagline on, on Elixir Wizards is we build custom mobile and web software for anyone who really needs it. And we tend to do it in Elixir. So I love that we're starting with this conversation about like the different types of software jobs and like even what is a software agency, because I feel like sometimes like explaining to like friends and relatives like what I do at a software agency is kind of hard to explain. Oh, I've never explained it. You you try to explain it. I just say I'm in tech. <laughs> I try to get it into like a sentence or two, like the elevator pitch. So now you can just give them a link to this podcast. Episode. Right. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Smart Logic, and specifically, I'm I would love to understand how that kind of works with the software agency because, like, I've never worked in one of these types of companies, and I know there's a lot of people who do. And when people are coming to this career path, I think it's just nice for people to understand there are a lot of these different lanes that we can pursue the same interest of doing Elixir and building solutions, and, but we can do it in different ways in different types of companies. So first of all, SmartLogic, how big is this company? Like, is this like a 10 to 20 or like, like a thousand plus? Oh my gosh, a thousand plus. <laughs> <laughs> we are 15 to 20 folks. And so SmartLogic is actually about 17 years old. Uh, that's something that I think surprises a lot of people when they hear it, because a lot of people know SmartLogic through Elixir Wizards and through the conferences. And the conferences generally are, have been happening for, what, seven, eight years? And so, you know, I think we were mostly a Ruby shop before and maybe before Ruby something else, but transitioned to Elixir and I could be getting these years wrong. I think it was roughly 2015. I wasn't there. But so when when we transitioned over, yeah, so 15, 20 people to talk about the way the kinds of projects that we do, I like to think of it as we are helping product companies when they need to build something and they don't necessarily have the team to do it. So, you know, a product company will come to us and say they need an application to help support their team to do this or that, or they're currently using a particular software, they don't like it, they're, they've been completely tweaking it to do everything that they need it to do, but it's not working for them, they need something custom. So we step in, we'll build something custom, we work with the client very closely on what they need, and also maybe just what their end goal is. And then we'll make suggestions because we're acting as the experts on the technology choices and we'll build it for them. And it's a fun time. I think the difference between working at a software agency versus like a product company, since I've done both, is you get a chance to experience different problem sets and work on them. Uh, when I worked at product companies before, we were working on basically the same problem set uh, you know, Kava, we were selling food and I worked at a travel company. We were selling travel. There were different airlines to integrate with. But, you know, ultimately, it's the same problem over and over again. Not to say that there aren't new problems that you face, 
But I personally find it really engaging to jump from product to product, to get a chance every five, six months to work on something new and hopefully exercise a new skill set. And I think some of our work crosses over to businesses that need software as well. Like there's a project we'll be talking about later that is more of like an e-commerce business that we're kind of supporting, like building kind of supporting software for that. So it runs everything from products and services online, but also kind of e-commerce and other types of businesses as well. We've even done product work or we've helped teams that had their own engineering team, but they needed help with a particular project or just an API for one thing. That was one part of their project that their team wasn't necessarily an expert in. And we would do that. And then we always get to spread, you know, the elixir love when that happens, which is always fun. And that I I really do enjoy because, you know, every once in a while you get to work with an entirely different uh, engineering team and just uh, you get to learn. And it's just like a three, four week period of, of getting a chance to interface with other people. And it's really fun. So does that fall under the staff augmentation kind of offering there where you're saying we have developers, but maybe we need some more for a temporary project? I wouldn't say it's a staff augmentation. It does. It, it acts as staff augmentation, but I wouldn't say it comes from that uh, standpoint. It more comes from a this thing needs to be built. Our team can't exactly build it right now. So we're focused on the building out that thing more than we are helping out this team for a period of time because their team is overloaded. I, I've only been here two and a half years, so I'm not sure if we've ever done that part. But yeah. What that sounds to me like is... Like, well, you give that example for the API, right? We need to integrate with this other service. It's really a standalone thing, right? That we need this other thing. So what's nice about that is there's a defined start and finish to that project, as opposed to we need 10 more bodies to help work down our bug log. Exactly. Not saying that we'd be opposed to that. I have no idea. Um, But yeah, that's mostly what what we've done. But a lot of it, most of it is a product company comes to us, they need something built, we build it out over a period of time within a budget, and then they might ask for maintenance. Uh, Maintenance is an interesting one with applications, especially app store updates and things like that. There's usually some kind of maintenance contract we'll we'll get into, but the main development mode, we keep a few projects at a time. Yeah, I think a staff augmentation is typically like skills building, team building, more than it is focused on like building a thing. A, uh, an app or a piece of software. So like one common example I saw for staff augmentation is that an engineering manager might come in and realize that uh, that, that their team is spans from juniors to, to intermediates, but don't have a, as many seniors and they, they can't seem to find a senior to join their team. So they'll hire st- a staff augmentation you know, solution from a software agency to sit with their team and train them up on the benefits of it's typically like TDD, how to do test-driven development, how to, you know, do a, a good CI pipeline for tests, you know, that, that, kind of, that kind of stuff. And it's not to say that there is no project involved there, right? Some, something is going to be built at the same time, but the focus, the thing to be built, it's the team to be built. ThoughtBot would do a lot of that when I was working there. But yeah, tip, it's easier to, to like, I, I don't know, to, to imagine like, yeah, software ag- agencies typically build a thing. And, and go and go from there. Yeah, the maintenance bit is is pretty interesting too. But it's starting a relationship, but it's typically to build a thing and then they're done for a while. Yeah, and I think, you know, when people ask me 
the difference between working at software agencies and product agencies, like which one I like more. I think it really depends on the mood you're in and like the kind of person you are and, and what kind of work you're looking for. I loved working in product companies, but the personality type that I am is, um, I'm trying not to use the word cheerleader, but it's the only one that comes to mind. I'm very, I'm very supportive and loyal to my product. So you're an advocate. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Let's scratch cheerleader and say advocate. <laughs> But that uses a lot of my mental and just like general energy. And I, when I don't spend that energy on uh, being an advocate, I focus more on on tech choices and my engineering skills and now engineering management skills. And I actually like being able to not be a part of the product and feel like I am a part of the product. I, I show up, I do whatever I need to do, and I put it down at the end of the project. And I, I like that. Uh, right now, at least, I am all for that because it's a, a nice way to live my life. And speaking of projects, like we know as software engineers, the work's never done, right? <laughs> like a project <laughs> may be finished, but the application is going to continue to grow and have new you know, requirements and demands, especially as you get new users and, uh, you know, as your business hopefully succeeds. So that opens the door for us. You know, if we if we do it right on the first project, then that uh, I think, you know, Speaking of the relationship as well, then like we have a connection to the business who hired us to bring us back on for additional projects as they start to grow. So, Cindy, you, you mentioned it as an engineering manager, and I'm curious to how as an engineering manager, it's it's easy to think as a software agency, you have this a pool of, I don't know, let's just say 10 individual contributors. That's typically how software engineers are divided up, right? You got a management path and then an IC path. IC path being, these are the folks that are going to be writing the majority of the code. Management path or everything else. But in, in the sense of a software agency, it's like you have a pool of like 10 ICs that you hire out, like mercenaries, right? <laughs> so you hire them out into these other, you know, other goals. Where does an engineering manager fit? you know, from your perspective in the sense of like a software agency, are you a support for those ICs? Are you a support for, you know, a, a particular problem in an application? I think you said that you help do some of that product management too, because I'm sure there's gaps on, on the uh, client side for product management. Like how does an engineering manager fit in a software agency? It took us a few tries to get it right. I will, I will speak to that too, but um, the way that it runs now is, we have a number of individual contributors on the team. For the most part, we're we're pretty small company. We run pretty lean. And so I'm the engineering manager for most of the ICs. And I'm essentially the manager for all of the ICs that are not staff engineers. Staff engineers report up to our director of engineering. And that team together kind of creates more like tech decisions, architecture decisions, and that kind of thing. And it's difficult to manage a, a team of that many engineers when I'm not on every project, right? So I am not individually contributing to every project. So I might have an individual contributor who's reporting to me who is on a project I've never seen, is in a language I don't know. And so I think the biggest challenge is supporting them in those cases. But the biggest thing is I, I check in, I have one-on-ones. I make sure that everybody knows what they're working on at different times. If we're in between projects, do they have something that they can work on that's contributing to their career growth? That's what I step in to do as an engineering manager for for the team that I support. 
there's been a dynamic that we've had to figure out, like a balance between projects and career growth and all of that. And I think we've finally gotten to a place where it's making sense. And it is, as I've just described, there was a time where we were having me be a little bit of a tech lead on certain projects. And that was something we thought we would do as an engineering management role. But that was before we decided that staff engineers would really take that tech lead role for particular projects, which that division works way better. I was project managing some projects for for a little bit of time. I'm good at it, but I don't like it, turns out. So I I quit that. Yeah. I try to split my time between 50, uh, sort of a 50-50 split between engineering management and individual contributor work myself, which has been interesting, but it's been good. Yeah, I can see how that'd be hard to manage engineers who are in different languages and different projects you've never seen. Because usually like in a product organization, it's like, Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows the product, right? And so engineering managers are usually also experts in the domain. So I, I could see how that would be like stretching in a in a weird way, in a different way. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing for me is questions around what can I do to support you? What am I not seeing? What, what, what would you like me to dig more into? What would you like me to leave alone? I end every one-on-one with finding out what takeaways I need to like, what's the big highlight from this particular one-on-one that you'd either like me to bubble up feedback or just like to sit with me as the big the big thing from this conversation. But especially when it's a project I don't have visibility on, I, I dig a lot more into those uh, during one-on-ones to make sure I've got a full picture or at least enough of a picture of what I need to know. Yeah. There's a, a facet of software agency developers and teams that I think is really fascinating that uh, and, and that I appreciate. It's it can be difficult to find. And that facet is being is how folks can be flexible. I remember when I was at a uh, an agency, one of my projects for about six to nine months or something was to basically develop their infrastructure as code. So before they were just, you know, they would they would provision some server somewhere throw their code up there, but none of it was recorded anywhere. It was just like, well, it's just kind of knowledge in somebody's head that you have to SSH into this. They hear the keys stored over here. One password didn't exist at the time, so it was probably some Word document. Who knows? We're all making a really <laughs> bad face right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of yikes faces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Well, I mean, that's how some some places operate. Uh, I, surely they don't do that now. Post-it notes all the way. But during that time, that that project, I learned that I don't like DevOps. I I don't like it. This was a long time ago. So DevOps has definitely like changed since then. But having that flexibility and that that freedom, that agency to say that, like, I don't like this kind of work anymore. You know, I I don't find value here uh, for, for myself in my career goals. As a software agency, you get you have that flexibility to like pick and choose those kinds of projects or uh, apply different kinds of ICs to those those projects that like that kind of that that kind of thing, right? At a product company, I find that it's more typical, this is not universal, right? More more typical that you just got to do what's assigned to you. You don't like DevOps? Tough. You know, you're going to have to you have to figure it out. <laughs> this is this is just what has to be done, you know? And I'm sure there's an element of that too at software agencies, but yeah, that's what I was going to say. For at least our size, uh, we're trying right now to round out all of our skill sets to be able to pick up anything. I'm definitely weaker in DevOps, stronger in front end, but I, I'd like to be able to deploy an application if I need to and understand what's going on with a deploy if it fails or something. Like, I I, I know very little right now, but, I'd, you know, if I come back, if we come back maybe in a year, 
onto this podcast. I'd like to say I learned it, you know. I'd like to hear a little bit more about what the experience is like working for a software developer at one of these places at an agency. Because, Sunday, you mentioned this idea of being able to work on a project and then put it down and then go to a different project. I'm assuming that I'm not, as a, as a software developer, I'm not jumping between like three projects in one day. Maybe I am. I don't know. Or is it like weeks at a time that I might, then when do I switch to a different project? We try very hard not to have you have three projects at a time, but I'll let Owen speak to the, the, the context switching. Yeah, so I, I think at the senior, junior, mid level, I think you're typically on a single project so you can focus and you kind of deliver your best work. Uh, I think the at the higher level, a staff engineer might be kind of overseeing, not writing code, but kind of overseeing, kind of checking in on developers across two or three projects, just kind of make sure that their experience is being, uh, you know, contributing to the expertise for anyone who needs it, you know. So making sure tickets are crossing the line in a reasonable amount of time and that we're not getting blocked on things. So, yeah, I think it, it kind of the roles like the I think the more senior you get, the more flexibility you'll need to like work on different projects. But yeah, so far I've, I've been working on a project at a time and that that's been really nice. Yeah. And I think the the only people who really work on individual contributing to multiple projects at a time are people who are maintaining other projects. So. The active development project is like 90% of the week, but 10% of the week, there might be a ticket or four hours dedicated to, there was a bug reported by one of our old apps and can you look into it, you know, so whoever happened to work on it, you know, they might be able to jump back in, pull things down, make sure everything's working okay. The maintenance mode projects is probably, and and when those bugs spiral, that's when people kind of go, hey, you know, I've been contact switching a lot this week. I need a better handle on on the way I'm tackling my time. That's when we see people having a harder time juggling a few projects. I could also imagine a situation where maybe someone gets pulled in almost as like as a consultant, like, oh, how do I solve this problem? You know, you're working on this other project, but I just need some, I need some help. Like, how do I solve this? We keep asking Owen <laughs> for help. Live you help. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, live you. Yeah. I think that happens in any any software company, though. You know, just, there's people who have different skills that you just need to draw on. So we, we have a concept of office hours for some of our uh, staff engineers who will have a set of time allotted to people's booking time with them and just asking whatever questions on whatever projects. And they might not have any contacts in that project. They might have never seen the code, but theoretically they can help somebody, you know, be a rubber duck or just, you know, go through it with them. Um, in the case of, you know, we, we added LiveView to a project recently and the team that was doing it was just learning LiveView or only had a certain experience. And Owen is on a different project, but has the most experience with LiveView. We pull Owen in for an hour. We try to make sure, like, you always talk about time boxing. It's even more important at a company where your time is billable. So, uh, you know, we time box it to an hour. And if we need more time, we like have to stop and really schedule it out and see like do we have the budget for this can we do this can we do that and really figure out can we get that extra time from that extra person and like do you know what questions to ask like going in mm -hmm. like are we just like going to sit there for an hour like guessing or like do you have like a specific question or like something you're trying to accomplish that helps that's an interesting way to do it so you guys said you had about 15 people at the company mm -hmm. how many of those are staff engineers two but that aligns with um, the number of projects that we're taking on at a time. If we ever had more projects active at one time, we would definitely want to scale up. Um, we've talked about that before. We've done it before, actually. Scale, you know, scaling with the the projects and whatnot. Right now, the the workload's been good. 
And um, I really enjoyed the the two staff engineers we have on on staff have been wonderful in their knowledge sharing, and it's just been such a good time. There was one project where I could not leave a stand up without like crying with laughter. It was too funny, and that was the one where my cat would always jump up and say hi during the stand up. Even she knew it was a fun time, you know. I'd love to dig in a little bit on how Elixir factors in to the company and to projects, because you've mentioned you have mobile. As an engineering manager, you have people who are working in different languages. So how does Elixir factor in? And one of the questions I think is when people come to you, do they say we're coming because we want Elixir help? Or are they coming and saying we want a thing, we want a product, and you say, well, we're going to use Elixir. Like, How does Elixir fit into all of this? I'm not sure about the percentage of the time that people come in and say they want Elixir. So, uh, there is a good amount of projects that we have where somebody already has something built in Elixir, they need it to be more built out, or the original team is not there, and we're able to do that. That comes in pretty frequently. But a lot of the times, somebody will come in and say, hey, we need something built, and they just happen to know somebody at the company, and we get that connection, that network, and then they say, yeah, we trust you to build it. And they they don't even know what Elixir is. They don't need to know. They just kind of, at the end of every sprint, check out what we've done. They're happy with it. Cool. We keep going. That is maybe the two most common situations that we see in terms of the mobile applications. We were React Native for a long time. We've since moved to Flutter. Um, if you've seen me in a conference recently, I won't shut up about Flutter. I think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I like learning it. I'm definitely not an expert, but I, I really enjoyed learning it. So sometimes that's just purely a front-end application. Sometimes that's an Elixir API that we hook into for the Flutter application. But yeah, that's, that's sort of our technology breakdown for that. And then most new projects will we'll pitch to be in Elixir. Every once in a while, we get a, a newer project where it's uh, building out an application that's a, a Rails app or something that comes in every once in a while, too. I think I've even seen TypeScript on some projects. Mm-hmm. We're trying to round that out. <laughs> yeah, you get, to, uh, you get to dabble in things that you haven't tried before also. Like, say I'm in, like a proficient in Elixir, but I also want to like brush up on TypeScript. I could jump, I could say, hey, Sunday, I think I want to take a stab at TypeScript. And then uh, maybe I get on a project that uses that and then I get to kind of build up my skills there as well. Yeah. And that's where like from an engineering management standpoint, I really like to dig in with people about what are their goals? Uh, what are they trying to work on more? We have some people who came in as, as Rails experts who wanted to work more on Elixir. So I, I flagged that. And then when we assign projects, the next time it comes up, we make sure that people who are interested in certain technologies can be on certain projects. We've had people who were good at Flutter who wanted to be on Elixir. And I was like, I, lo I love Elixir, but I, I'm currently very interested in Flutter. So, you know, it's not always going to be everyone gets exactly what they want, but we try to match it up where we can. And so that goal setting and understanding where people are trying to land in their careers is super helpful at planning time. It feels pretty clear that you're you're definitely interested in career development for those folks, which is like... That's pin pinnacle engineering manager kind of stuff right there. So th thanks <laughs> yeah. for being like that. <laughs> how, how do you balance that, though, uh, with, you know, the, the constraints of the project? You know, because like, any new technology that I get into, like, I don't know Flutter, but I'm interested in it. I, I know it's, I've heard it's a really cool and fun thing. Uh, and it would be this whole realm of development I haven't gotten into yet, which I would love to do. But I would be really slow at it. <laughs> and if I'm going to be put on a project and we're billing the customer, you know, the client that, 
how how do you how do you compensate or do you comp like how do you balance that with uh with the client? I think there's an onboarding aspect to every project and I don't know that I can speak to the financials of it, but I know that the finance side of our, our of SmartLogic will take that into consideration when putting together invoices. I don't know the breakdown, um, but that is certainly something that we talk about. But in terms of between projects, we try to schedule the projects so that we get professional development time to ramp up on a thing. So when I took on a Flutter project a few springs ago, was it last? Oh my God. Okay. Time is, whew. Um, yeah. When I was ramping up on the Flutter, I had two weeks between the previous project, which was Elixir, and this upcoming project, which was Flutter. So me and another uh, coworker on the team uh, really deep dived into Flutter. I was in the Flutter Apprentice book. We were trying to figure out, is Flutter really the best option for us or should we move forward with react native um we get that time usually so between projects we try to ramp up like that yeah and and i was gonna say like to clarify what i said earlier like if i'm interested in typescript i'm not going to go straight into a a, you know billable hours for a typescript project i'll spend probably like a professional professional development day at least uh kind of uh watching tutorials reading docs listening to podcasts whatever i can to like brush up my skills on that particular topic yeah, and we have one PD day per month, which is at least built in to the the scheduling, the rotation, uh, and then the, of the other PD time that we have is between projects. That's nice, and it's nice to be able to fall back on something and and brush up your skills uh, in between those projects during that downtime. Can you share anything about like a current project so we can get uh, our heads around what does this look like? What kinds of projects might you be working on like right now? Sure. So. I'll kind of reference a project that I'm working on currently. And uh, so it's a client project. It's more of a business that needs software. The project is we need to get this data from this very complicated database or collection of databases into this other very complicated uh, database. So (laughs) this is a project we kind of did some discovery on initially and then kind of came back around as some actual, you know, project, you know, kind of deliverables that we could write for, uh, you know, creating an application here. So, so yeah, this, like, as we were starting to kind of get, come to terms with like what was being requested, I was starting to have flashbacks to my previous job uh, where I did some ETL work. I'd been introduced to the concept of ETL, which stands for extract, transform, and load. And uh, so I'd done, I'd done some work migrating data from one system to another using PHP <laughs> and uh, a little bit in Python as well. And but the whole time I was doing that, I was like, "Hey guys, it'd be nice if we could use Broadway and like Elixir, and there's some some really cool stuff, and that would, you know, solve some problems for us." So now, fast forward to you know, this year, uh, this project comes along, and we start to kind of pick apart the details, understand what's being requested here, and then the bell starts to go off. Hey, this is ETL, which I don't think the word or the phrase had kind of come up to that point, but I was like, "Hey, this is just starting to look like ETL to me," and then. Uh, then I was like, wait a minute, we have an opportunity to use Broadway. Uh, like the first thing you see whenever you search ETL Elixir is some post about Broadway because it's like the go-to tool for uh, doing this type of work. And, you know, Broadway, if you look at it, you know, at the surface level, it's, you might get the impression that it's basically used just for like digesting data from like Kinesis or SQS or like, you know, Amazon or um, Kafka streams maybe even RabbitMQ. But for this project, we're actually 
digesting data from a database. So that gave me the opportunity to learn about custom producers. And we've got a couple of custom producers that we've built. Uh, one to, to digest information from the database, another one to digest information from JSON files. Yeah, we can go way, way into the weeds here, but <laughs> the, uh, the database producer is also connecting to an unusual type of database for Elixirist, and that would be Microsoft SQL. So I, we talked <laughs> about this a little bit in our Ecto episode on Elixir Wizards, <laughs> but this is where I've had the most, you know, challenges is like getting the TDS adapter for Microsoft SQL to to work in a way that we understand typically, you know, with Postgres. Yeah. You say unusual. So let me let me clarify there. Microsoft SQL, I think percentage-wise usage in the market is still above <laughs> like most other uh databases. So unusual in the sen- in, in the sense of uh of the Elixir world, I think, but not very unusual in the tech world. If you do mix Phoenix new or like, you know, mixed new or something, you're not choosing Microsoft SQL, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and to be clear, the the project is we're moving off of Microsoft SQL into Postgres. So that's, we're kind of writing this application that kind of does all the ETL work between the two databases. And it's it's really interesting that Owen is getting a chance to experience what this looks like, because this is another thing that I, I forgot to mention when we're talking about the like differences in working at software agencies is that um, at a project company, you're not often doing mixed PHX new. You're not starting a new Phoenix project oftentimes. And that means you don't know what's changed with the generators. You don't often know what's different about a newer version of Phoenix. And starting a new project every six months, especially for something that moves as quickly as LiveView and Phoenix, is is really a good learning experience. So whenever Owen talks about time traveling a little bit and working with maybe some older technologies, it's always a little bit of an eye-opener. And it's been, it's been fun. So like it can be challenging, you know, there's some frustrations for, to be sure about connecting to a Microsoft SQL database through TDS. Documentation could be better. Uh, you know, there's opportunities for us since we're using this thing to actually contribute some documentation, I think. So maybe, you know, as time allows, that might be something we start to to consider. I think another challenge is like kind of communicating between different teams. Like people have different levels of experience with like either the concept of ETL or like this is Broadway was the first, this is the first project where we're using Broadway and where the client's using Broadway. So we had to kind of, kind of sell it a little bit, you know, I have to explain that this is the tool that we want to use here, but here's why. And, uh, you know, it's battle tested. It's not going to expose us to a lot of risk for what we're trying to do here. It's actually going to help us move faster. So. That's another kind of skill that doesn't come up necessarily in the job posting is like, you know, there's all this communication you have to do in addition to, you know, writing the code. And you guys probably get a lot of, a lot more opportunities than product companies do uh, for advocating for, you know, a certain solution, a certain library, a certain... Certain language. You know, language, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I miss that a little bit. From your sense of, from all the projects that you've worked on, Oh, and I know you, you've only you've been there for just a year, a year now. So, Cindy, maybe you, maybe you have a, a a good comparison. But earlier on, with your time to Smart Logic, and compared to now, how do you feel? You know, the advocating for something like Elixir has has changed. Is I, I suspect it's been a harder sell earlier on than it is today. But what what you know? Do you still find that true today? Yeah, I think I joined when Elixir was already an easy sell. 
I think the the years in which people had to be convinced on Elixir and projects probably was closer to the 2015-2016 mark. Uh, for the most part, people are down for whatever suggestion we have. They're just mostly curious about how long it'll take and how much money it'll cost. They're very much less concerned with the language involved. Just get it done, right? <laughs> yeah, just get it done. I think the people who are concerned about the technology, uh, if they've come to us, they've already kind of, they've, they're already in the Elixir ecosystem somehow. So I don't think we've had to to do the convincing in a little while. Yeah. Well, we are about out of time, but I did see that the Elixir Conf videos were, we've mentioned this previously in one of the news segments, that more of the videos are available for the from Elixir Conf 2022. Sunday, you were there. I saw you. And that was a great chance to meet you in person and talk with you again. Uh, and I also, Owen, you mentioned that uh, we got to visit in person. So it was great seeing you. But Owen, you gave a talk there, right? That is correct. <laughs> so I gave a talk um, about building a live component to to implement WebAuth for live view applications. So in a nutshell, that's what it was. And so it's about 30 minutes, I think, if I remember correctly. So I've released a, as part of the talk, I released a live component on Hex for WebAuthn. And so it's, and actually I've learned a couple of things in the past couple of days about passkeys. I think passkeys are evolving just a little bit more. Uh, so I've got some updates to make, but uh, the talk is up on YouTube. So you can watch the talk and that'll kind of explain what WebAuthn is at a high level. It will introduce you to the live component and you can even kind of see some of the code. The code's open source. It's on GitHub. But uh, I do have some work planned to bring it up to an alpha status at the very least <laughs> so people can, like, you know, try it out. Uh, but I'm hoping to get it into beta or maybe, you know, first 1.0 version probably early next year. So the idea is, like, with the WebAuthn Live component is, uh, let's say, so you mentioned earlier there's, like, the Phoenix Gen Auth, like, live option. So that what that does is it allows you to add like a username password form to your application so people can sign in and register with a uh, you know username and password which could be maybe email and password or whatever. With WebAuthn and with Passkey specifically, you can set up your authentication system so you don't even need to request a username from the user. They can use a like a hardware device to uh, register and authenticate to your application. And uh, so this does a lot of things for security. It, it means that you don't have to worry about you know, passwords being compromised in your database. These things are not reusable across multiple sites. So like each credential is unique. Uh, but the talk goes into a little bit more detail about the use case for this. Yeah, passkeys is an interesting new approach that has gotten a lot of support from Apple and Google and you know big companies to try and make it a, a better experience, a safer experience. That sounds awesome, though. Yeah, so WebAuthn has been around for a while. I think what passkeys are doing is it's kind of being absorbed into the operating system level, so it's better supported through macOS, Android, uh, Windows, and so on. So, like as like the next you know few months roll out updates to these operating systems and browsers, uh, you'll start to see options. You know, at least for us developers, we'll start to have more flexibility to implement passwordless accounts. Yeah, so it's really exciting if you're uh, at all interested in web security stuff. And I enjoyed your conference talk. It was great. So yes, dear listener, you should check that out. Well, thank you. 
All right, so that's one way uh, we can find you on online is uh, through your YouTube video or you're giving that talk. You've got some online presence now with your hex package, great, which is great. Uh, where else can we find you guys? So I don't know as of, as of the date of release of this episode if Twitter still exists, but I do have a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's behind a paywall. Who knows? It's, you know, a few weeks in the future. <laughs> so we have a Smart Logic Twitter account, and also you can find me at Owen oh, Bickford is my Twitter. But I've also got some GitHub handles in the in the link section. Same thing for me. You know, you can find me on Twitter at Sunday K H I N Sunday Kin. You know, debatable on if you'll find me, but no, I, I should be there. And if you need to find me elsewhere, I'm on the Elixir Lang Slack under Sunday Mint. And uh, yeah, if you are interested in reaching out to the podcast for any reason, we're podcasts at smartlogic.io. Pretty easy to remember. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for coming and talking with us because I appreciate the perspective of software agency as a as another lane, right, of the options that we as software developers have for working in and me never having worked in that agency, I love the perspective. Anyway, thank you guys for coming on. I had a great time talking. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Mm-hmm.